What's going on, folks? It's your boy here, Dr. Sean Thomas, back in the building again with episode 25 of the Be More Today show. I'm back in the building, folks, and I'm excited. 25 is a big number. We've had 25 episodes, and I'm just happy that people are listening to the show. Uh, We're now heard in 13 countries, so the show has been growing. It's been doing really well. It's all thanks to you, so thank you so much for being with us. My quote for today is very, very simple. At some point, intentions become irrelevant by Sarah Kuberic. Listen, I don't care what you said you wanted to do, right? Everybody says they want to do something. They want to be something. They want to try something. But all intentions become irrelevant unless you do something about them. You got to go out there and get this stuff done. This year, 2020, has been upside down, topsy-turvy, right? We said that we had goals for 2020 in January. We were so hyped for all things that we wanted to do. And the monkey wrench came, right? Kobe Bryant's death, COVID-19, Black Lives Matter, all these different things came and hit a smack dab in the face. But as we really end or go towards the end of 2020, I'm recognizing that a lot of people are starting to really get out there and do things. I've seen so many people who started businesses in the last couple of weeks. People are going out there and going back to school. Um, people are going out there and being more active, uh, you know, I'm doing this grit challenge for this month and people have been doing that where he's running. People who didn't run at all are going out there running, running, running. So it's been a time for us to, yes, um, have sorrow. Uh, yes, be discouraged. But at the same time, people have used this time to be the better version of themselves in various ways. So at some point in time, intentions become irrelevant. You have to go out there, forget your intentions and just get it done. They say just do it. Yeah, they mean just do it. And I don't know about you, but I just hope that as you use this time, as you really head into September, October, November, December of this year, that you will put all of your inhibitions aside, your fears to the wayside, and get out there and do what you want to do. Life is short, folks. Um, we've seen that. We've seen that in various ways. So take this time, cherish life, uh, forget your intentions. I want to see actions and make sure your actions count for today and for tomorrow. Folks, my guest for today is special to me. Um, I, I had to bring a big name on for episode 25 because I've known this guy for almost 25 years. His name is Parag Shaw, and he's my best friend. Parag Shaw is a mediator, arbitrator, and special master for Miles Mediation and Arbitration. Parag specializes in mediating personal injury cases, arbitrating hospitality matters, and serving as a special master in international disputes. Prague also serves as the professional development coordinator for Miles Mediation and Arbitration. Prague's unique qualifications come from his diverse personal and professional background. Prague is of Indian descent and grew up in a small town in Arkansas, where his family was involved in the hotel industry. Prague eventually left the small town and moved down to Atlanta, where he, ser- he started his own law firm, the Shaw Law Firm specializing in personal injury and criminal defense. As an attorney, Prague has been acknowledged as Georgia's top 40 under 40 by the Daily Report, a rising star by Super Lawyers Magazine, Georgia Trend Magazine, and the Georgia Asian Pacific American Bar Association. AV rated by Martin Dell Hubble and rated 10 out of 10 by avvo.com. 
Parag has also found success wearing a number of hats. In 2016, Parag was appointed as a pro hoc judge to the city of Atlanta Municipal Court. He also elected to represent the 5th District for the Council of Municipal Court Judges. Parag is currently an adjunct professor at Ohio Northern University Law School, where he teaches negotiations, jury selection, depositions, and cross-examination. Parag speaks at seminars across the state and country on personal injury and mediation. He is also a former faculty member of the Georgia Trial Skills Clinic, GACDL's Bill Daniel Trial Program, and AAJ's Deposition College. In addition, Parag has run a criminal defense externship program through John Marshall Law School in Atlanta. Parag regularly provides legal commentary on CNN and HLN. He has been featured on Nancy Grace, Crime and Justice, Weekend Express, and NPR's This American Life. Parag is the author of three Georgia pocketbooks, The Code, Criminal, The Code, Civil, and The Code, Evidence. He is also the author of the Municipal Benchmark, which are all currently published by MyCLE. Parag is a member of a number of local and national associations and charities, including Side by Side Brain Injury, Clubhouse, and Nicholas House. Folks, I can go on and on about this guy, but let me just bring him onto the show now. My friend, my brother from another mother, I love him dearly like a friend because he's my best friend, Parag Shaw. Parag, what's going on, homie? Johnny T, it's so great to see you and be with you today. I love your podcast. I love Be More Today. And I brought something very special to get us started. For those of you watching, this this is our basketball practice jersey. Sean has the real jersey because he was a star. But this, (laughs) this is the practice jersey in which Sean would score tons and tons of points on me. And I keep this memory to know that Sean is the best. This is is my memory that Sean is the best. I just keep this practice jersey right here next to you. I'm just going to sit it right here. Always just right next to me, Sean. (laughs) Reminding me to be more today. Yo, I'm surprised you're you still have that and it looks like it's brand new, which is amazing. <laughs> well, you know, I you know, I rode the bench a lot, so you know, it didn't get it didn't get used. It's like, you know, I kept it very pristine and clean. Oh, that's a throwback. I got my choke shirt on too, man. So clearly you went to high school together, you went to choke together. I met you in 1996, the fall of 96. And my fondest memory of you, my friend, is you and I in Hill House at the dining hall. And we're sitting around and, you know, when we go to eat, they have these little cups where people get drinks, right, from the fountain. And you get the small cups. You have to get a couple of them. And, you know, for those of you who don't know, we went to a boarding school called Brookmary Hall. I talk about it all the time. I think it's the best school in the world, uh, top three boarding schools in the country. But uh, we went to the school together and, you know, we both were uh, 15. And, uh, you know, we both came from different places. You came from Arkansas. I came from New York. And we're sitting at the table together because we live in the same dorm. Um, so I forget exactly how we went to dinner together, but we all went together, me, you, and our other friends who were in the dorm with us. And everyone's shooting napkins into these cups. And uh, for whatever reason, you know, I recognize that you were competitive and I'm competitive too. Very so, competitive. Very right, com- and, you're, and you're the one who first said, yo, I bet you $100, you won't make it. Now, we're sitting across from each other. and I remember looking at you and being like, yo, I don't have $100 in my account right now. <laughs> but I'm going to bet you anyway that, you know, I can make this thing. And I remember I made it. 
And you were like, all right, cool, let's go. And I was like, what? What you mean, let's go? And we walked to the ATM and you pulled out $100. And I was like, yo, what? (laughs) Word is bond, man. You cannot say something and not stick behind it, even at 15. The problem is I always had a big mouth. And so I can tell you that I have lost a lot, a lot because of this mouth. So... Ever since then, we, we I, I said, no, keep the money. Let's just ha- keep this going. And we went back and forth with various bets, various throwing napkins into cup bets, various other bets in life. And there's a whole sheet, actually, with our bets on them, bets that we made since we were 15 years old about anything. Who win the NBA finals in this year? You know, who's going to do this? Who can walk the line the longest? Or, you know, just dumb stuff. Dumb, and, um, dumb. How many toothpicks, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, great. Who can eat the most cookies? Just right. The craziest stuff. Um, and our, our friendship just just grew and grew from there. We were roommates for uh, a number of years and we kept together. And you're actually, you're my, you're my oldest friend to this date. So I appreciate our friendship and thank you so much for joining on the show. I really am happy that you're here. Oh, I appreciate you inviting me. You're my best friend. Um, and, uh, you know, it's because I pay you $5 a month every month to be my friend. So I really appreciate it. You know, <laughs> thanks for that subscription model for those of you that are in business. The subscription model works. It really, really works. <laughs> Yo, let's get into it. Let's get into it. So Parag Shaw, um, a man of many talents, many different hats. Uh, COVID-19 has hit us all in the face right now. Uh, how are you doing and what are you doing right now in the midst of COVID-19? Well, first of all, it's just a blessing to be alive um, and to have the people closest to me all doing okay. I think that's the most important thing is the safety of everybody around us, especially because the world, but more specifically, the country is so divided. It's so divided. And um, just like everybody else, taking a day at a time, adapting to everything changing. And, you know, going back to the fact that the country is divided, you know, it's really a time where you really have to have strong mental strength, strong, like moral core. And, you know, it's, I think the hardest part about COVID-19 is you got to pick a side, you know, there's right and there's wrong going on right now. And uh, I think that's the hardest part is, you know, do you, which, which side do you want to be on? And are you willing to take all that heat or progress? You know, so that's, that's what I think about when I think about COVID-19. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't think about it as taking a side, but you're absolutely right. Taking a side in terms of, am I wearing a mask? I'm not wearing a mask. Am I going to go out there and listen to social distancing? Or am I going to go out there and do my own thing no matter what I feel like? And yeah, the list goes on and on. So yeah, it, it's very interesting. You mentioned taking a side. It's exactly what it's become nowadays. Taking because a side. it's easy just to be like a, 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 what's it called? A window shopper, you know, right. where you just kind of watch and look on social media and stuff, but to be engaged and to be, you know, as you would say, you know, more today, you know, um, requires action. And that's, I think the one thing COVID-19 has taught us is that, yes, you can stay back and just sit and do, you know, be quarantined, so to speak, be mentally quarantined too, or you can get mentally engaged um, despite this virus. So, yeah, that's valid. That's valid. So I, I know you're an attorney, clearly. Um, and I remember you literally being at my house studying for the bar exam. Uh, and it's just awesome to see your progression from 
Choate to where you are now. You're actually our first attorney on the show. Um, Do you mind just sharing with the listeners what the journey is um, to be an attorney? Sure, absolutely. Uh, Well, let me tell your listeners the first thing that um, I was never really good at school. School was never my thing. And so the journey to becoming a lawyer just kind of happened. But in terms of how you actually do it, you know, after Choate went to college, I went to Rhodes College in Memphis. And during that time, the main factor that influenced me becoming a lawyer was I did an internship at the public defender's office there. And I was paired up with this lawyer who kind of showed me you know, what he did, being in the courtroom. And from there, uh, he basically told me, you know, what you need to do is you need to take the LSAT and apply to law school. And back then, you know, it's law school is a lot different than medical school. In medical school, you need these prerequisites, the MCAT, all these things. For law school, it's really not that robust of a requirement. You take the LSAT, do pretty well in school, and there's a law school out there that's a fit for you. And law school is a lot different than medical school in those other fields. It's only three years. Um, the first year is really intensive in terms of classes, but the rest is a lot of practical, kind of like a residency program even. Um, and uh, so I went to law school in Ohio, small school, Ohio Northern University in Ada, Ohio. And, uh, you know, luckily graduated and then passed the bar in Atlanta and uh, in Georgia. And that's where I've been ever since. So the leap from taking the LSAT, going to school, uh, doing the internship, et cetera, um, pushed you to become a lawyer. And then now you have your own law firm, the Shaw Law Firm. Firm. What inspired you to start that? Yeah, so let's, let me me back it up a bit. Uh Because, Sean, you know this. Because, so my journey, if we can be honest, has been to follow in Sean Thomas's footsteps, Dr. Sean Thomas's footsteps. So one thing that the audience may or may not know is that Sean was an amazing entertainer, dancer, performer, all those things. And so I followed in that footstep. And for in college, what I really wanted to do was to be an entertainer, performer, like my friend Sean was. Well, one thing that you may not know is that I also have a practice jersey for entertaining and dancing and stuff. And so somehow um, I ended up going to law school really to buy myself some more time. And when Mm. I was in law school, it was the internships, externships that I did and seeing the practical aspect of how the actual justice system works. What we learn in books is um, was a lot different than what we see in the justice system, racial inequality, uh, socioeconomic inequality, um, and there's also the internal ego of the lawyers. And so all of those things became appealing, and I kind of left everything away, went into the law. And uh, the reason I wanted to um, start the law firm, my own law firm, is because the honest answer is that when you're in a system, you are bound by the rules of that system. So if you are in a company or in government or anything like that, and I was young, I was 25 years old. I had no experience how to navigate in bureaucracy or even how to deal with authority and authority figures and structure and those type of things. 
And if I saw something wrong, I couldn't do anything about it. Mm. And the best part about having your own law firm is that you make the decisions. You fail, you win, you lose. You want to do something, you can do it. You see something, you say something. It's all on your shoulder. And sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. But that's probably the main reason. Um, and then, Sean, you know, from living with me, I'm just a very particular person. You know, I've, I've uh, you know, got all the lotions and stuff, you know, like the <laughs> no, very, know. you know, so yeah. I kind of like to run my own ship. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I think the the <clears throat> the confidence and the willpower to start your own business and your own law firm is admirable. I remember when I came to visit you down there and you were working for um, the, the office you were working down there at, at, at your first job in Atlanta. And um, I could tell you were in it, but just watching you walk around. Cause I remember you showed me a tour of the place and I walked around with you. It just seemed like you had a different plan in mind. Like you had a plan, like you worked there and you were happy to be there, but that was never going to be your home. Like you, you knew you were going somewhere else. And just the way that you talked about it, the way you walked around the place, the way people like responded to you, I could tell, you know, he's not going to, this is just a pit stop for him. He has bigger things on the, on the agenda. And I think you've been always someone who, who did that. And even talking about like, I mean, the entertainment stuff, you and I did a lot of things that were very similar in high school. And, and even in college, we, we live very similar, uh, uh, mirror like lives, if you will, um, from dancing and singing and what have you. Um, but I, I do think you, in your tenacity, um, you know, you mentioned the basketball stuff. You, you were great. You, 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 your, your, your work ethic, uh, is something that I admired. Um, and I didn't recognize it until I actually was not in your presence anymore when I was in school at Brown, when I recognized, man, I was with this guy for so many years. Uh, I'm out here doing, uh, dances and I'm at basketball games and I'm doing track stuff and he's actually studying in the library. Like, mm, maybe, maybe he's got something on me that I don't know about. And, um, you know, I, I banked a lot on talent, but you banked a lot on talent and, and hard work. And I think as I got older, I started to really incorporate the hard work aspect into it as well. But you've always had that. Um, your parents have had that. I mean, you mentioned in your bio, your parents are in the whole industry. I've seen them work diligently to, to create an empire on their own. And, and I see that also in you. So when you said you were starting your law firm, it, it just made complete sense to me. It was never going to be uh, a surprise that you would do that and it would be so successful. So I think it's, I think we see opportunities a lot just in general. And we see things that we want to change and do, but there is that internal voice that's always kind of keeping us back and saying, like when starting my law firm, I was scared. I was at that point, I was 27 years old, been practicing for two years or or by that time, it had been four years, actually, in 2010. And, you know, in my mind, I thought I knew (laughs) everything, but I I didn't know what I was doing. I had no idea of how to actually do that, all the ins and outs. Um, And it was scary. And the biggest piece is fearlessness. I mean, that's basically it, is that no one is going to tell you when the right time is. Everybody tells you it's the wrong time. That's, that's the common message. No, you're not ready. This is not the time. You don't have enough money. You need to do these things, all that type of stuff. But no one tells you when's the right time. And 
Um, I think, you know, all the different things and why we're so similar, Sean, is that, you know, it's not really given, you know, nothing's kind of given. We've kind of both learned that uh, if you wait for a door to open, if you have the mentality that, hey, someday a door is going to open and that opportunity is going to kind of show itself, you may be waiting a long time because your own mind is what's keeping that door closed. Mm -hmm. But if you think of it, not as doors open or closed, but just hallways, where it's just, there's no doors, they're just hallways. And you can go down this hallway, you can go down that hallway. It's completely open. The hallway's free. There's no COVID one-way signs. Mm -hmm. It's everything is open. Do you want to just go start walking? So that kind of helps, you know, to, for us to have that kind of mentality and, you know, but it's, it was scary. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. Well, you've done a superb job on starting this empire and I know you, you, you have the law firm, but you also are doing now professional development as a coordinator for miles mediation. Um, what is miles mediation exactly? And what inspired the transition from criminal defense, which is advocacy based to now doing mediation work? So Miles Mediation and Arbitration is a company that provides dispute resolution services to parties involved in legal disputes. So essentially, I, as a mediator, help to bring people in a legal dispute to a resolution. So if we filed a lawsuit against each other, Sean, which I know would never happen, obviously, you know, obviously, this is this is mine. (laughs) But Say you sued me over this jersey and told me this. Jersey. All right. And we were in a lawsuit. Well, a third party mediator comes to see if they can come to some kind of resolution. And so um, the reason I kind of started going down that road is um, as silly as it may sound as a lawyer, I was not very confrontational. Um, I don't like to argue. I don't like the idea of, of losing or someone losing or the fate of their dispute in the hands of strangers, like a jury or something. I like the idea of, um, you know, everybody kind of coming together. You know, there's, I, I truly believe that there is not a problem that can't be solved. That's just, that's just what I believe that we can work any problem if we put enough time, effort, and energy into it. And, um, you know, one of the things I will tell you this that when I decided to switch and become a mediator, that was in 2015. So I'd been in private practice, had my firm from 2010 to 2015, was doing well doing very well was considered, you know, all the accolades you mentioned and, and all the success. And when I switched, a lot of people said to me, said, Parag, why would you do that? Like you went through all this, you're on the uphill, like you're you're a successful lawyer. You can be even more successful. There's all this bright future ahead of you. Why would you kind of put that away and switch gears midstream and all that success And the answer is very simple. I know who I am internally. And who I am internally is a person that is compassionate, um, believes that we should all get along, we should work together, that we shouldn't fight, that, and, and and that's who I am. And I, the emotional aspect of being a lawyer is, is a unique, is a unique thing is a unique thing. So that's, that's the reason it's really internal. Yeah. I, I, well, as listeners know, I'm married to an attorney. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I know, I know a little more than most about the emotional 
roller coaster that comes with that. Um, especially because you guys have become the voices of so many who don't have a voice um, or have a voice but can't use their voice. And I think the work you guys do is great. I think it's underrated, to be honest. And um, seeing your progression from um, criminal defense to your law firm to this, it just makes sense based on your personality and on all you've done. Um, and like you said, just your your, your current demeanor. Um, you know, you were in high school. You You were the one who could pretty much say anything to anyone uh, in, a, in a way that didn't seem offensive, didn't seem confrontational, just the way you ha- you could speak to anyone about anything. Um, you had no problem talking to anyone, no matter what they look like, race, color, gender, et cetera, ethnic backgrounds, what have you. You, you were that person who really could connect all the dots. And um, it, it just makes sense that you would do mediation work because you're in the same realm. You're bringing people together who probably don't want to talk to each other at all, but at, at a time where you're there, they can at least get their disputes and differences, you know, on one accord, or at least, you know, can, can find some kind of resolution to it. So it makes sense that you will be doing this. And I'm sure you, you do a, a phenomenal job with it. Well, I appreciate it. And, and the, the hardest part of any conversation in life in general is the truth. Mm. The truth is just hard to say to people, we shade it, we color it, we, you know, kind of beat around the bush and stuff. But to, to honestly talk to someone and say the truth is difficult. And, you know, being a mediator, that is part of what my job is, is to be able to say and to look someone, to, to, to tell someone some news, the truth in their eyes. It is, you know, I, I thought it would be, I thought it'd be a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that's the other thing about whatever venture you do is that nothing is easy. Yeah. Everything is hard. Everything has it. Some people just make it look easy. Mm-hmm. Some people just make it look easy, but it's all hard. It's all difficult. And that's why I think it always comes down to your core self of, are you doing something that speaks to your core self? Or are you doing something because it's expected of you? I mean, it's no lie that my parents wanted me to be a doctor, right? And I could have went to med school, could have been a doctor, or I could have stayed as a lawyer, or I could have done all these things because the external forces were telling me, Parag, you're doing great. This is, you are on the right path. Keep going down that path. Don't deviate from it. But the core self was saying, there's more. There's more out there. I'm going to go do it. Yeah. I'm going to go do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you made the right decision, my friend, clearly. And <laughs> <laughs> you're doing more and more than I ever thought you would. And I'm just really proud of you. Um, you are also a pro hoc judge. Um, talk to us about how that happened. And then let me know if you think, as a judge, is it hard to remain impartial, um, being that you are an attorney and that so much of your work is, is advocacy-based. Right. So the, I, I can't stop but start everything with so, Sean. I don't know why. That's, you know, that's the one thing they tell you in law school, that when you're doing a cross-examination of someone or you're doing any type of examination in court, yeah. you find yourself saying so, that means you ask too many questions. I mean, you ah. get too many things. So there's, there's my legal tip for everyone. <laughs> um, the way I became a judge is how it happened for everything else in my life which is every decision 
that I make, I make it based on your core moral beliefs and, you know, being a good person, right or wrong, those type of things, not money, prestige, respect, reputation, all those type of things, especially now in this point in my life, for sure. Uh, I got hired to represent this woman uh, for free who got charged with driving under the influence. And she was schizophrenic, but the officer confused her schizophrenia with being under the influence. And so when we went to court, I had a mental health hearing, basically, where I argued that this is not DUI. This is mental health issue. And we had this huge hearing. And at the end, it worked out for her. And afterwards, the judge called me up and said, hey, the mayor is looking to appoint some part-time judges. Would you be interested in that? And I'm going to, what am I going to say? No, no, I'm not interested. Thank, thank you. I appreciate it. But I was like, yeah, sure. So um, he sends my name in and says, okay, I need you to fill out this application. I felt this application. And then I get scheduled for an interview with all these judges. Now, at the time I was practicing law, everything was going great. I really didn't even think about being a judge. And so I really kind of didn't prepare for the interview. I walked in and they're asking, and everybody's interview is like five minutes. Mine lasted like 15, 20 minutes. And they're just asking me a question and I'm speaking the truth. Like, like real talk with Parag Shaw. <laughs> I leave the interview. Usually you find something out within a couple of weeks. Nothing. Crickets. Nothing. I'm talking to my wife. I'm like, Liz, I really should have prepared for this. Interview. Like, I, and she was like, yeah, dummy, of course. Like, why would you just go in there? And why did you speak your mind? You know, like that's, that's not smart for I like these are not these are not what smart people do. Um, nobody wants your real talk. And so so for two years, I didn't hear anything. Wow. One night I'm playing basketball. I get a call from the chief judge that says, hey, the mayor's ready to appoint someone. And uh, we gave him three names. Yours is one of them. And you'll find out. Are you still interested? I say yes. The next morning, mayor sends a letter, says you're appointed. Wow. And that's and that's kind of how that happened. Wow. Wow. Two wow. years. You know, I thought I blew it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Before a lot. everybody else dropped out. I mean, I don't know which one is the truth, but <laughs> let's just assume I had the qualification. Let's just assume <laughs> everybody said yes, and they still selected me. Got it. Got it. So, yeah, so now that you are a judge, again, in terms of advocacy, um, is it hard to remain impartial? So let me break down the word impartial mm. for a bit. Okay. Um, impartial, oftentimes when we're talking about judging, we're talking about impartial in terms of the process and fairness. So meaning, you know, um, that the process is fair, that everybody gets a fair shake, and that you're not swayed by one person or another because of race, religion, uh, their reputation in the community, all those type of things. And judges that say that uh, one lawyer who has a good reputation versus another, that they're not going to listen to that one lawyer a little bit more is probably, probably a little, or is lying a little bit. Okay. Those things influence, but impartial means knowing as a judge what you're biased towards, putting that aside to ensure the process is fair. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, 
it's not that difficult because it's really clear, you know, it's really clear in that moment that, okay, you have a little bit of a bias. Um, I, there's a judge here in, in Georgia and uh, she always gives this example about how she was a single mother and raised um, three kids. And that when a single mother would come to her with an excuse, she felt really biased. Like say, well, I don't understand why you're making that excuse. I did that kind of thing. But she was able to see that bias, put it away and be impartial and, and, and make it. Now, here's the difficult part about being a judge. This is where the second part of impartiality comes in. It's kind of like the matrix, right? You see stuff before it actually happens or, or, some, or something like that. And um, you know what the law says, but then you know what the practical consequences of that decision is going to do. Uh, you know that w- what you are about to decide may make that person homeless. Or so, for example, let me give you an example. So I'm in traffic court, city ordinances, all right? There's a violation. The person has been, let's say something, something like public drunkenness. This is their 15th public drunkenness, okay? Now, under the law, we look at prior behavior, prior crimes and sentencing. We look at a whole bunch of different factors. One side is arguing this person needs to learn a lesson and should be in jail for 30 days. The other side is saying maybe this person needs treatment, but they've gone through treatment. They can't, you know, it's nothing working, whatever. And no, but let them, let them out. Let them, let them get time served or, or whatnot. And so you're in a situation and, and you understand that, that you, as a lawyer, as, as a judge, you need to focus on the law, do what the legal, what, what legally is right. But practically, you know that if you put this person in jail for 30 days, they're not going to pay rent. They're going to lose their, they're going to lose their apartment um, or wherever they're staying, or there may be some mental illness issues going on. There's, there's all these things. And what, what's often quoted is what, when these interviews, like the judicial interview I was talking about, is they're trying to figure out, are you an advocate judge or are you a, kind of like a strict constructionist type of judge. And everybody has different opinions about that. Um, you know, how much, how much do we look at the practical sense of what's happening and what's going on? Or do you stay with the law? And it's a fine line and judges massage it. And that's why there's always so much debate as to who, the, who people are nominating, who's, uh-huh. you know, who the president is, uh-huh. because the president is going to appoint someone with those type of beliefs and stuff. And, you know, there is a famous quote that goes on in the defense in the criminal defense world. And it comes from a Supreme court case or somebody, I can't remember what Supreme court justice said this, but uh, say a defendant is convicted of murder. All right. And then there's an appeal. And during that appeal, the victim, the person who passed away walks into the courtroom. So clearly he's not dead. He didn't commit murder. Well, that doesn't mean the conviction should be overturned if the person got a fair trial. Mm. If the person got a fair trial, that's what we that's what we decide on. Did the person get a fair trial? Then the conviction stands. It doesn't matter that this person walked through the door. Mm. This is why the this is this is this is the difficult that now that's an extreme example, but there are micro examples like that that constantly happen in the courtroom. Constantly. That as a judge, you're battling your your own 
you know, can you be impartial in those situations? It's hard. It's, 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 it's very, 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 very difficult. That's, I can't imagine. I mean, I make decisions at work, which are different because they're health-based and mine, not even life and death because I do physical therapy. So it's totally different, but recognizing the, like you said, the consequences of your decision and seeing, like you said, I mean, we saw the matrix in high school together when it first came out the first one. So I remember the matrix very, very clearly being able to see what's going to happen in the future and recognizing that if you decide this and that person most likely will have to go down this road, right? Blue pill, red pill, whatever you want to call it. Um, that's a, that's a, that's a lot. That's a lot to have to process, deal with, and also be, like you said, impartial to the system and, and knowing what the right thing to do is based on what's being presented to you. Um, yeah, I, I, I applaud you for that. It's, it's hard to sleep. You know, all these things that we do, they affect people's lives, all mm. of us. And yeah. all. Yeah. Mm, that we do and i think people take for granted how hard it is to sleep at night right 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 now switching gears a little bit i know that um you're someone who has continued to give back in various ways um i was uh fortunate enough to go with you to your alma mater ohio northern um funny that i actually married a woman from ohio and I had never really thought about Ohio until I went to Ohio with you. Right, um, right. So Ohio Northern was your law school, and now you teach there. What made you want to go back there and teach at your alma mater? I think a little bit about everything that we've been talking about here, which is school teaches you one aspect of whatever profession you're trying to go into. But there is this whole other sect that you know you wish you were prepared for, you know, I, I represented a lot of athletes um, when I was in private practice. And, you know, a lot of young athletes would say, like, you know, they're always, I wish I was prepared for, you know, all the people that would be trying to come to me for stuff and the financial aspects and those type of things. And teaching is hard. Nothing is as hard as teaching, but it, nothing is more rewarding. Uh, one of the main reasons I wanted to teach is because I do believe that you give back to the people and institutions that help you get where you are. Um, there is, yeah, I, I'm sure many of us have heard the phrase, um, what's it called? Uh, oh, you're going you're gonna to forget about the, us little people when you get all big, right? When people say that all the time, oh, you know, when you get all big, you're going to forget about us. And that phrase comes from something, right? It's, it's a phrase that, was in, that came from somewhere probably from people who liked what it's like to be at the top, to be successful, to be around that air and be around that, those people in that community and to kind of say, oh, I made it kind of thing. Um, and you forget about the people that helped you get there. And that's one of the things I'm very mindful of, which is I could, I Ohio Northern is the reason that I didn't go down the path of trying to be Usher's backup dancer. Okay. I mean, I mean, Ohio Northern is the reason where I'm here, where I am today. And some of those professors, and like I told you, Sean, before in the audience, um, I was never good at school. I never got good grades, never did well on tests. Um, I, I was not, I didn't get awards or, or, 
excel at different things or recognized in school. But there were some people that believed in me and still, you know, wrote those recommendations, still did those things, uh, asked me to come back. And so it's, it's real easy to forget what it took to get where you are. Um, and so that's, that's why I teach there. Mm, yeah, I, I love that about you, dude. Uh, just the fact that you, all the accolades, right? All the accolades that we read earlier, you, you would never even know unless you really knew, you know what I mean? And you, you never give that off and you always give back. And from the time I met you in 96, you were always, even to, with my family and friends, you were always just giving. I mean, you're the kind of person who, if someone says that they like the shirt you're wearing, you're like, oh, you want it? And you'll try to like, take it off to give it to them. Like, that's just the kind of person you are. So it, it, it just makes sense that you would give back to your alma mater and give back to all the other programs because you're just a giving person in general. And, you know, I salute you for that and I applaud you for that. And it just both more to say who, of the person you are and the character that you possess um, and how everything you do is pretty much just in line with everything else. I mean, the, the giving and the impartiality you have towards people in general is what I'm, I'm believing you, was, uh, you, you, you would do in the courtroom um, to, to your clients, the people you meet. And I can just... And, and, and seeing you work with people in, in, in Atlanta before um, and not seeing you, you know, recently, but I can just imagine that that same love and that same impartiality and that same, um, you know, we got this together as, as a people thing is, is what you're still instilling in people down there now. And um, it's what the world needs. Um, it's what we need more of. We get so tied up on who we are and what we're doing those things don't really matter. It doesn't matter who you are, what you're doing. What matters is how you're doing it. How, how are you, how are you um, acting? How are you, how are you doing the things that you're doing? Um, And that passion kind of comes from within. That's why it's interesting. You know, since you've been going through this, it's like, you know, we, we've all done a lot of different things and uh, you know, it's always kind of stay to the core of who you are. Right. Right. So as a result of all the work you've done, especially in Atlanta, you've gone on not just to have your own law firm, but to also be an author uh, and an author of, of many books. Mm. Talk to me about The Code and what inspired you to write these series of small pocket books. I started practicing when I was 25 years old. I was at the public defender's office and I had to represent all these people that were a lot older than me in serious felony crimes. And when you're in court, the jury box is filled with all lawyers waiting for their cases. And the back gallery is all my clients. And I was arguing a case or arguing a point with the judge for my client. And the judge said, Parag, are you sure that's what the law says? And so I went back to my table and I have all these big horn books, legal books. I'm looking through it. And when I'm nervous and Sean, you know, this, I sweat in the face. Like that's it. My tell at any poker table is if I'm sweating, if my face is sweating, Parag ain't got nothing. He ain't got nothing. And so my client, which is much older than me, is looking at me like, who is this kid? The people, the lawyers in the jury box are laughing. They're like, what? How do you not know that? And the, and the, all the people I'm representing in the gallery are like, can we get a different lawyer? Mm-hmm. I get up there. I just say something. And the judge is like, nope, not it. And then kept the case going. And so what I did is 
um, I didn't want that experience to happen again. So every night I'd read the, the, the law and I'd put it on these note cards. And so I kept these note cards with me. And so I was arguing something and a couple of attorneys said, hey, what are you using? I said, oh, these are my note cards. And they're like, can I get a copy? And I was like, yeah, sure. So I go to Kinko's and I'm like, hey, can I get like 15 copies of these note cards or whatnot? And it's Kinko's, so it's some exorbitant price. And the guy behind the counter is like, why don't you just make it into a book? And I was like, oh, okay, cool. So at the time, there were two big publishing companies, Westlaw and LexisNexis. So I call, um, I call LexisNexis up and they're like, are you a judge? Who, who are you? Uh, no, thanks. Thank you. Bye. And then I call Westlaw and Westlaw was like, pocketbooks? Would it have an index? I'm like, no, it's a pocket. There's no index. It's, it's small. They're like, well, we don't do pocketbooks. And I think it's a terrible idea. So I'm like, okay, thank you. So I go to Barnes and Nobles. I get a book on self-publishing. And it's and I see that a lot of the self-publishing companies or people that publish books use Adobe InDesign. So I bought the program. I went to Emory for six nights, learned how to use it, wrote the book myself, and I designed the cover by putting all the legal horn books on the floor and make the cover look like it. So subliminally, you would think, oh, it's got to be legit. It looks just like the rest of these books. And then I sold the stuff out of my trunk like CDs. And that's how I wrote the code. And let me tell you, this, this, is, this is probably the best part of the story, which is I wrote that book in 2000, I mean, um, 2007. I'm still writing it, still self-publishing it. From 2007 to 2017, every year I contacted Westlaw and Lexus and asked that I would mail them a copy and I would ask them, will you still publish my book? Because I was still, I wanted their validation. They never said yes wow. to this day. To this day. Wow. Wow. <laughs> the reason I do it, and the reason I do it is for this one reason. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, I'm tired. I'm tired. I mean, it's a long time I've been updating this book. I update it every year. But the reason I do it is because you cannot have a justice system where the players don't know the rules of the game. Mm. That's it. That's the reason I continue to write the book. And this is the, and that is it. Because if you have a justice system where the lawyers don't know the rules of the game, you are going to get an unjust result, mm. period. That's mm. just what I believe. Mm. 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 That's a powerful story, my friend. That's a powerful story right there. Wow. Folks, if you want to talk about resilience and making sure that you never give up on something, that little tidbit right there is going to be, I think, the the nugget that you need. Um, and now your book is, I'm sure every lawyer in Atlanta is using your pocketbook at some point in time. Um, yeah, so I think we've we've you know we've sold thousands of copies over the since 2007. Um, you know, every year, and so it's all over Georgia, and it you know it's. It's great because, and I don't make any money on the books. Um, And so it's not about the money. It's literally about, are we all on the same page? We can only get better. We can only move forward. We can only grow if the foundation, if we're all on the same foundation. Mm -hmm. I love it. Listen, dude, I I know you 
you've been on CNN, you've been on Nancy Grace, Headline News. Um, what's it like? We just talked about your entire advocacy work, mediation, criminal defense, working with the clients. But in the TV realm, which is a little different, what's it like being on screen talking about these same issues with Nancy Grace and all the others? Scary. Scary. If there's any theme that's going on with this interview, it's everything is scary. Um, Nancy Grace is a force to be reckoned with. Um, She's terrifying. She is super nice. Greatest, great person in person on screen. Terrifying. Mm. Um, You know, the, the, the being on TV is an interesting thing. And so let me kind of set set the scene for you so you know what it's like. So uh, most recently I go to, when I would go to Nancy Grace or go CNN, you go there, you know, you're all dressed up in a suit, everything. You go in, you have to, you, you sign in, check in, you wait in the lobby. Somebody comes down to get you, takes you to makeup. You get all makeup, dolled up, everything. Then you take it into the studio. Sometimes it's with the anchor or the host. Sometimes you're in a room by yourself. There's a room with a big screen. There is uh, two cameras or, or there's a camera in front of you, but there are two screens underneath it. One screen, you see the show. The other screen, you see yourself. There are all these lights on you. Uh, you have an earpiece on and a mic. And normally the shows that I did were all live. So you'd see there'd be a little timer, a little countdown. And so as soon as they got to eight o'clock, it would be like, all right, boom. And they go three, two, one shows on. And so that's the head thing come and you're like, it's, it's jittery because the show's going. They don't tell you when they're calling on you. You have no idea. Nancy Grace would do this thing. Well, um, where she would say, uh, you know, I guess let's ask the lawyers or something. I can't remember now what, what her phrase was. Um, and so then that was the cue is like, all right, you're in. Now, at the same time, the people are in your ear saying stuff like, you know, um, you know, don't give don't don't say that the person was convicted or don't do this or, hey, more energy. You know, like they're talking while she's asking questions. And so like you're listening. The questions are always like kind of loaded. Right. Like like uh, OJ, you know, like always about OJ. OJ's was always the best. But so, so it's, it's, it's high intensity and it's real quick, real quick. So you got to hear the question, process it. You have to respond in a way that is legal, but for the audience, which is the public. And so you have to take some complex legal theory, break it down, simple sentences, and be able to convey that in 10, 15 seconds, Mm -hmm. maybe a little bit more. And I was really bad. My videos are all on YouTube. I put I put all the good, the good ones and the bad ones all on YouTube because you are a product of your growth. And so you, you can see the difference from when I, the first videos and moving forward. And um, yeah, it's, uh, but it made me a better communicator, both as a lawyer and as a mediator, because it helped me to, um, to take information, simplify it and relay it. And the best part about the show was that I think that we are so used to being in a bubble with social media and everything, the way data is collected. You see things that you like, 
the ads you get are things that you like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. People that are for your friends with also are people you like and the TV shows you watch or TV shows you like, you know, that you don't get contrary views. And so what's really great about going on as a legal analyst on these shows is that they're always showing the opposite perspective and then asking you about it. And you have to take a view of sometimes we're debating it. So Nancy would always take the view of the general public. And my role was always to defend the other piece of it. That's a hard thing to do because sometimes my opinion was with Nancy. Right. But that's not your role. Your role is to provide the other Hmm. side of the coin, Hmm. right or wrong. Hmm. So anyway, that's an explanation. No, I I had a chance to see some of your um, interviews or your, your um, performances, if you will, on, on live when it happened and, was super excited to see you on on CNN and on TV, and I think you did a great job. Um, and yeah, like you said, with anything, you get better with time. Clearly, but I thought I thought you were great, even with the the blunders and the and the incoherent <laughs> thoughts that sometimes came about. You 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 represented, if you will, uh, and I was I was proud to see you up there. So thank you, thank um, you. I also clearly we're friends, so I, I watch all your videos from CNN to dancing to. Uh, most recently you put up a homage to Black Lives Matter. Um, and it was very moving, a lot of images about what's happening around the world. And, and, uh, of course, with all the things that are happening around the country, it was very timely. Um, how do you see yourself? I mean, I know we're minorities, clearly, um, you're a South Asian man living in Atlanta, um, and which has a very, very, interestingly diverse um, black and brown community. Um, where do you see yourself um, doing the work that you do in Atlanta at this time, uh, given all that's happening around the world? This is going to sound strange coming from a mediator, uh, but equality is non-negotiable. That's it. That's pretty much it. Equality is non-negotiable. Now being South Asian Uh, provides me and other South Asians a unique opportunity. You know, I grew up in Blyville, Arkansas, small town, Arkansas, um, and very racially segregated. Um, You know, blacks on one side, whites on one side. They uh, rarely hung out together or cross dated or any of those type of things. And I was always being South Asian, identified a little bit in both groups. Which, which allowed me uh, an opportunity to be in both worlds. I didn't really know that at the time. I was a young kid, you know, but now growing up and, and going to Chode and all the different experiences, South Asians have a unique opportunity to move the conversation forward because they do kind of live in both worlds. Um, the second piece of it is, is that many South Asians are in positions where they can actually make a difference. Uh, I know in Atlanta, we have a lot of high-level executives, managers, general counsel, partners of law firms um, in the medical field, high up in the medical field. And so they have the ability to kind of make change and progress and move the conversation forward, especially the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. And it's, 
it's important to start taking those kinds of actions uh, and not just kind of talk about it. I believe that if you are in a position where people listen to you, then you should use your voice for good. You should use your voice for change. The one reason I posted that Black Lives Matter video, um, I was, I was, the way it happened, I was just in the car and Tupac song came on. And when I heard the Me Against the World, when I heard that last verse of the lyrics, I, it, just, it just moved me. That same day, I think we talked on the phone too. And you provided, uh, you know, perspective as well because it was all happening in real time. And so there are a lot of times where you may say to yourself, because of where I work or what I do or where I am or the people I associate with, I'm not going to put myself out there. I disagree. That is the time where you need to make a stand and say what you believe. And because there certain things there is right there, there just is the example I like to give is um, about the Nazis. Either you're either there's no middle ground on that. Either you're a Nazi or you're not. There's there's no, no middle ground. Either you are a Nazi or you're not. Either you are for Black Lives Matter or you're not. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Yeah. I will. I, the video that you posted was was powerful, and you know, I, I thought about Tupac because I got into Tupac because of you. You exposed me to Tupac and all of the wonderful, amazingly talented verses that he has and CDs that he has. I mean, folks, this is the time when we actually did listen to CDs, actual CDs, and a CD player. And um, you know, Tupac was a lyrical genius, uh, so smart, so so witty. For his time and for us to hear those songs in real time, you know, 96, 97, when he actually was still alive, it just was, uh, uh, it was moving. And to see those lyrics still being applied to what's happening today, I mean, it's frustrating, but it also lets us know that, you know, we have work to do and we have to keep our heads up for sure. So I, I'm glad that you shared it up there. We, 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 we got to work together. We just, yeah. everybody's got to do it together. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and speaking of togetherness, you, you know, you do a lot of work in terms of community, um, which, again, which is not surprising at all because you have a knack for bringing people together. Talk to me a little bit about the um, Nicholas House and Side by Side Brain Injury Clubhouse. So I have to give my wife the credit, uh, Elizabeth George, because she's heavily involved in a number of charities and she's on the board of especially these two that you just mentioned. Um, and she's the one that kind of really got me into kind of charity work and, and those type of things. And, and side by side provides people with brain injury disabilities in their families, skills development, support and advocacy. And Nicholas House provides housing to homeless families. Um, many times what they do uh, when it comes to homeless families is they break up the family and Nicholas House keeps the family unit together and, mm. and provides support. Uh, both organizations, with any charity, it goes back to everything we've been talking about, which is life is about people and perspective. That is how I think, I think that's the equation for growth. Um, 
people plus perspective equals growth. And that being, being a part of side by side, Nicholas house, the other charities, um, that Liz has gotten me involved in, uh, there's more to life than who you are and what you do. I think that's the overall lesson. Yeah. There's a lot to be done and there's a lot you can do to help. Yeah. I, I like what you said. People plus perspective equals growth. That's powerful. Um, and again, it's it just, it's great to see you doing that kind of work. And with Liz, of course, Liz, uh, I love Liz. She's amazing. Um, also an attorney and part of the Shaw law, for, law firm, but um, seeing what you guys do together is is inspiring. Um, all the way to us in Brooklyn, so just keep up the good work and know that people are actually watching and that lives are being changed as a result. For those of you who are joining us just now, it's episode twenty five of the Be More Today Show. I'm here with uh, CNN analyst uh, Parag Shaw, arbitrator, mediator, uh, Shaw law former uh, author of the Code. And these pocketbooks, he has done great things. Cho alumni, uh, master of many things, Tupac lover, basketballer, you name it, he does it. He does it, folks. And um, it's great to have you on the show, P. You know, you're my boy. Um, we've known each other for over 25 years. And Be More Today is something that you helped me with because I came to you and our mutual friends, Doug and, and Matt, who I'll have on the show at some other time as well, um, about this concept. And you guys are very honest with me about you know, when we first started, our name was weird and our concept was weird. And you guys basically were like, yo, what are you doing? <laughs> like, get yourself together. And I appreciate it because only friends can really do that. You know, only friends can really sit you down and tell you, like you said, the truth about what you're really trying to do and what's really going on. And as a result, we've grown and we've prospered and been persevering and we are where we are now. And I give honor and credit and kudos to you guys for helping me through that. So be more today is a phrase that I use, but it's also a phrase that we use together and a phrase I think that brings us all together. So Parag Shaw, when you hear the phrase, be more today, what do you think it means to you? Our mind is filled with what we didn't do, how we wish we could have changed. I think one of the things that always goes through my mind is, wow, I probably could have got here a lot faster if I didn't, <laughs> you know, Wait, all the wasted time and things I didn't do and um, be more today means that there is no better time to start than right now. Today is it. Um, my one of our family members, he always says, life is not a rehearsal. And that's kind of always stuck with me in the sense that you can fall off the wagon as many times as you want. But each day brings a new opportunity. And be more today means that what has happened does not define what needs to happen now. Um, in mediation and negotiations, it's called, uh, there's this thing called sunk cost fallacy. I don't know if you ever heard of the sunk cost fallacy. So I'm, I'm, let me give you a brief thing about the sunk cost fallacy. So I eat a chocolate chip cookie every night. Okay. It's, it's, it's crazy. So sometimes I'll go, and so I'll go to Publix, and I'll get a whole row of cookies, all right? And, but every morning I wake up and I go, you know what, that's it. I'm not going to eat cookies or anything like that. But this one time I bought these row of cookies, and I ate a couple. And then the next morning I was like, you know what, I'm quit. I'm not going to eat cookies every night. But I had already bought this row of cookies. 
And it was like, no, I need to finish that. And what the sunk cost fallacy is, is it says your present decisions are being dictated by past decisions. Some of you might have a couch or some shirts or something in your closet that you haven't gotten rid of because you paid for it. You've never worn, but you paid for it. So I don't want to get rid of it. I don't want to move on. I don't want to be more today because first thing I need to do is I need to finish these row of cookies and then I'll be more today. Right. First, I need, I need to wear this shirt. I need to sit on this couch for a little bit. You know, I, so be more today tell, means to me that um, don't fall on the sunk cost. Not, today is it. This, the time is now. Mm, I like that. Don't fall on the sunk cost. Yeah. Uh, you and I were 18 at the same time. And uh, we were dumb, right? <laughs> we did a lot of dumb things from being like 15, 18 years old. I showed me a lot of like weird decisions and what have you. Um, what is some advice that you wish someone had shared with you when you were 18 years old? When I was 18 years old, what grade was that, Sean? When were, where That's were basically we? when we had just left show, just starting you at Jones and me at Brown, yeah. When I was 18, I wanted to be anybody but myself. I wanted to be someone else. I wanted to be someone successful. I wanted to emulate, mimic, copy the people around me. Um, I wanted approval. I wanted, I, wanted, I wanted everything that everyone else had that I thought I didn't have. Um, and for a long time, I chased things that were means to an end. And, you know, if I, if I was going to go back to the, my 18-year-old self and say something, I would tell him that everything's going to be okay that the main thing is to be a good person and focus on being that all the other stuff will fall into place, but I don't think we hear enough how special we all are in and of its in and of ourselves. Uh, we hear about how, how special other people are and we kind of want to be special like them, but we're all special. We all have things that are amazing about ourselves. And the hardest thing to see about that is it's, it's yourself. It's, it's hard to see what's so special about yourself. And what's special about me that I have found through the years is that um, I think I'm a good person. And I'm going to let that be my guiding voice moving forward. I, you know, would a good person do this? Would I do this? I'm a good person. I would do this. Um, and so that's what I would tell myself. Mm. I would say focus on that more. Focus on being a good person. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I watched a video of you. Uh, I'm not sure if you were teaching or doing a presentation at Ohio Northern or where you were, but you did some dance, uh, which I'm, I'm, I'm very happy that you incorporate dancing into some of these presentations. <laughs> uh, if I were one of your students, I would say this is the best teacher ever. Um, but secondly, you use a phrase in your presentation that I've copied and used in other presentations, fail forward. Um, where'd you get that from? Where'd you hear it? And what does it mean to you? 
So I can't remember exactly where I heard that from, but essentially it means to embrace failure as your way to progress forward. Um, and, and the way it came to me was in this transition between lawyer and mediator and changing positions. And what I call it is pivoting. You know, we're constantly pivoting. Because so, I'm still in the legal field, I've just pivoted within it. Um, and this is kind of how it all started. When you're starting out anything, what are the things we hear all the time? It's trial and error, learn from your mistakes. Um, and so you're more inclined to fail forward in the beginning of anything. When you're younger, starting a new project because, oh, it's trial and error, whatever. What are the messages when you become successful? When you become like LeBron James, which is, we expect this out of you. We expect a championship. Um, no, you, you, there is no room for mistakes. There is no margin of error. Those are the words you hear as you start developing up. And, um, and with that comes, as you grow up, there becomes more. You get more established. You have more responsibilities. And you feel internally like you can't fail. You know how obsessed I am about my my face and skincare. It's like, how am I forty and still getting pimples? Like, why is that still happening? You know, like, why 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 does that happen? Um, and too many people depend on us, and that you should not make mistakes after a certain age or a point in your career. That's just how we feel. But that's not life. That is not life. I feel so many times that we look at life. In segments, there was my younger years, my college years, there's this, and then there's going to be this and this, and these are different phases. And what I try to do is not look at it that way, but look at it as like just one open kind of space. Like this, this is life. It's not a linear thing from start to finish. It's just an open space. And life is about learning and growing. And in order for you to learn and grow, you have to have setbacks. And failing forward basically means being comfortable with setbacks, being comfortable with falling on your face, being comfortable with. Uh, so I just watched Friday. You know, it's one of our favorite movies. Yes, sir. Right? right. And in Friday, the dad tells Ice Cube that when he was going to take a take his gun to handle Debo, he says, you know, all you need is this. Right. And he says, look, you win some and you lose some, yeah. but you always live to see another day. That's, that's what fail forward means. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yes. Shout out to Friday, one of the best movies ever made. <laughs> the best. <laughs> John, should we tell him our, our other favorite movie or should we leave that off this? Or should it be part we'll, leave, we'll leave it for the next one. <laughs> behind the scenes of our second favorite movie. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, behind the scenes and for people to put in the comments to get <laughs> so Pete, as you know, I wrote this book, Be More Today, a 40-day guide to a better version of you. And in the book, we have these what I call steps to greatness, things that I encourage people to start doing, stop doing, and um goals for their lives. What's um one thing that you wanted to start doing this year? Uh one of the things that I want to start doing, so I've already kind of started doing it which is I'm going back to school. Um, I'm going to go get my MBA. Uh, the reason that I'm doing that is because uh, at the company that I work at, Miles Mediation, I'm not only just a mediator, 
I'm also the development coordinator and I'm in kind of in a management position there and I want to go back to school. Now, there are a lot of reasons why I should not have, I didn't want to do it. Um, one is sunk cost fallacy. Some of it is I never did well in school. And that's the image I have of myself is that I'm not good at school. And why would I go back to school? But the other part of it is I'm in a different place. I know exactly what I want to do. I know exactly what I want to learn. And so I'm, I'm kind of really excited, but also very scared to go back to school. Um, and the other thing that I want to do this year is I want to, um, well, I guess this goes with, I want to take more responsibility for myself. You know, it's real easy to say, this is just how I am. Mm. I feel like that's just real easy to say. It's like, I'm, I'm almost 40. I'm set in my ways. Can't, uh, you know, a tire doesn't change its stripes. This is just how it is. It's just how I am. I, I kind of want to see if I can break that mentality. I don't want to think like that. I don't know how not to think like that, but I don't want to think like that. And so I'm going to work on figuring out how not to think like that. Mm. Mm. Maybe I'll listen to more Be More Today podcasts and stuff, and maybe one of your listeners will help me through that. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, yeah, a lot of people do say that. Um, it's just the way it is. It's who I am. Love me or leave me alone. You know, it's, like, <laughs> it's just like it's just the way it is. But yeah, we can we can definitely be different. It, it, it's not it's not easy. It's hard, um, but we can definitely be different. We can definitely be different. Um, what's one thing you wanted to stop doing this year? Eat that chocolate chip cookie every night, man. I'm telling you, <laughs> it's real. The struggle is real, my friend. I can tell you, I, did, I stopped eating uh, chocolate or candy for like a week. Yeah. But then when I had one taste, I was like, okay, well, I could reward myself with one. And now I'm, I'm. <laughs> that was it. John, I mean, it's struggle <laughs> real, man. You're done. You still have your trainer or no? Yeah. You know, but you know, with anything, it's real easy to text like, oh, I can't make it today. Or hey, <laughs> you know, uh, maybe, maybe next week. Or, oh, you know, I hurt my camp. I'm always pulling a muscle. <laughs> always. I'm always pulling a muscle. that's gonna be a definite stop and then well first of all kudos for you for going back to school my friend i mean lawyer uh uh, author um community service and now business school that's that's just like i mean what else do you to do do you like what (laughs) like mad degrees now lots of letters very impressive (laughs) it'll keep me warm at night Very impressive. Um, I wish you the best for that, clearly. Uh, What's one goal you have for for 2020, if you have a goal for 2020? My my goal for 2020 is to get through this pandemic. Hmm. And that means uh, together. I think the main thing that we forget about in this pandemic is the mental piece of all of this. Hard not being around your loved ones, hard not seeing people. Um, and it's an opportunity to be the rock in the family, in the community, and provide that kind of stability that um, and so that's that's like my goal for the is, is try to help as many people through this pandemic as I can, either by emotionally, 
physically, financially, um, however it is, I really want to continue the message of got to stick together. You know, there's one life. We're all here together. Let's, let's, let's do this all together. Nobody has to live on an Island by themselves. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. I usually call it community over competition, but um, yeah, same concept. Just got to come together and just stop, <sighs> put all the issues aside and just, just be unified and together we can get this thing done. Um, I'm a firm believer in that for sure. Bucket list, my friend, if you had to one thing on your bucket list, uh, what's one thing that you would say you want to do before your time here is over? <clears throat> so this is going to sound ridiculous, Sean, but, um, so I don't really have a bucket list. Okay. I, um, there's nothing like I really want to do before I die. You know, I'm a homebody. I just, you know, but I, I want, I want the people around me to be happy and for everyone to like live a full and happy life. And so what, what I'm going to do from now until the day I die is um, continue just to be around family. You know, I love kids and I love your little daughter, Sonali. Um, and so my bucket list is to make sure that I don't miss um, anything that our kids have going on. My little nephews, nieces, my friend's kids, you know, I, I want to make sure that they live a life where they have felt supported, loved and appreciated. And they know each day that they're special. Um, and that's, that's kind of what I see my role as in, in our, I call you my extended family with my family, my extended family. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of what I live for. Yeah. Yeah. That's big. That's big. Well, so, so love to Uncle Pookie too. So um, <laughs> just know that Uncle Pookie gets lots of love. Um, any final tips, advice you want to share with up and coming attorneys, people who are trying to be in your shoes when it comes to being a judge, when it comes to being an author, um, or anything that you want to share with listeners as your final thoughts? Yeah, so... I keep saying so, Sean. Sean, you got to break me of that habit. Um, I don't know why I do that. I think this whole podcast and interview has shown kind of all the different things that um, that you kind of need, which is be fearless. Things are going to be scary. It's going to be hard. Uh, but if there's one advice that I can give people is um, stand up and do the right thing and don't stand idly by uh, the law, especially will put you in a situation where your character will be tested. And I want to leave you with this final story, Sean. Um, it's the one regret that I have. I was in court as a lawyer representing somebody. And like I said, all the lawyers sit in the jury box, <clears throat> all the defendants are in the gallery and then, you know, people out on bond or who die and the judge comes out. And, you know, we're, I'm having a good time. You know, we're all talking, whatever. Judge comes out. Judge calls this lady's name. Lady stands up. Judge says, where's your attorney? And she says, I couldn't get one. Obviously, I couldn't afford one. I couldn't find one. And the judge said, the last time you were in court, what did I tell you? I said that if you came back without a lawyer, I was going to put you in jail. Um... And uh, she said, yes, but I try, but I can't afford it, whatever. And the judge said, take her away. Now, let me tell you what went through my mind. 
my mind said, Prog, stand up and just say you're going to represent her. I represent her for free, whatever. I'll, I'll, I'll handle the case. Do you know why that Parag didn't stand up? Because that Parag thought about all the cases he had and that he was here and that I don't know anything about her case. And I'm kind of scared to do that. Should I do that? Should I nervous? I regret that decision to this day because I had the chance to stand up and do something that was right. She shouldn't have gone to jail because she couldn't afford a lawyer and had a lawyer. And it's not on anybody else. It was on me at that point. And I keep that story in my mind because every time a situation comes up that's nuanced, I say to myself, are you going to sit there idle? Are you going to stand up and do the right thing? And I don't think about how does this make Parag look? What else does Parag have going on? What does Parag need to do right now? Or why should I take the word Parag out of the sentence? I just say, is this right? Do you stand up? So that's that's what I would tell. That would be my tip and advice for everyone, which is you will be put in a situation similar to mine and have the courage to do what I didn't have the courage to do at that time. Mm. Mm. With that, folks, episode 25 is in the books. Frog Shaw, thank you so much for being with us, man. I... 25 is a big number and you made it even better just by being here and sharing your story. So I appreciate you. Where can people find you, connect with you, uh, either on social media or otherwise? You can email me, call me anytime. You can go to milesmediation.com. All my info's there. You can Google Parag Shaw Atlanta. I think I'll, I'll come up. My social media name is the T-H-E. Shastra, S-H-A-H-S-T-R-A, the Shastra. Um, if you want to know why it's that, uh, look up the Sanskrit word for uh, Shastra uh, without the, the middle H and, and you'll see why. And uh, so I appreciate it. Thank you, Sean, my best bud. Um, I appreciate it, man. This was great. I'm, I'm, you know what? I'm not going to eat a cookie today, Sean. <laughs> Maybe I will in celebration. Exactly. Well, so you deserve it. You did a good job. <laughs> okay. This is great. <laughs> so folks, I just thank you so much for tuning into the show. Again, episode 25 in the books. And don't forget our quotation for today. At some point, intentions become irrelevant. So, uh, by Sarah Kubrick, like Parag said, stand up, um, be the better person, get over those fears. And if you see something that you want to do, stand up and do it. Um, he said so many different things during this podcast, folks. I hope you guys caught it. Life is not a rehearsal. This is real talk right now. So get out there and make sure you live it in real time. Uh, the Be More Today show continues to be aired on every single Monday. Uh, you can find us at Be More Today for our Facebook and Instagram posts uh, weekly. And our website is still the same, bemoretoday.com. That's bemoretoday.com. You can find our music, uh, the book, the podcast information, anything you want about Be More Today is on those websites. So check those out uh, whenever you have some time. And for those of you who want to see any uh, audio or video from YouTube pages, um, go to youtube.com for our workouts. You will go on there and find workouts that you post every week about ways to kind of keep you on the move. So keep following those for sure. Our Strava group is up and running and is live. We have now 50 members on our Strava group. So if you are a runner or a jogger or a biker, whatever you are, a walker, uh, go on Strava and join our Be More Today group and just be a part of the fun. We post these episodes so people can listen to these things while they're working out. So get on there, join our Strava group, and be a part of the movement. 
The Be More Today show is on most major podcast platforms, including Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, and Google Play. And like I said earlier, we are now heard in 12 countries and the U.S., so 13 countries total. We are growing. We are growing. It's all thanks to you. If you want to support us in any way, you can go on our page and support our page um, on, on there if you want. Like Parag said, those $5 subscriptions do count. So go on there and subscribe. Subscribe and like us. We appreciate it. And if you want to do any advertising on the show too as well, send us a message to bemoretoday.com. That's bemoretoday at gmail.com. Um, all of our social media plat- platforms are all good as well. So folks, thank you so much for joining us and check out the Words for Life Volume 3 projects and our Words for Life podcast on every single Wednesday. And for those of you who have been here every single week, you already know I'm going to say, have a good day, have a good night, have a great life, and continue to take your steps to greatness to be the best version of you. Peace! Living life with nothing to prove I'm gonna be a better version of me